You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 170, The Battle of White Marsh. For the last few weeks, I've been neglecting Washington's army as we finished off Saratoga, then spent a couple of weeks with the British clearing the Delaware, and then last week catching up with the Continental Congress at York. We last left Washington retreating from his attack at Germantown on October 4, 1777, way back in episode 163. After the retreat from Germantown, Washington and his men marched to Lansdale, Pennsylvania, about 20 miles northwest of Germantown. In the couple of weeks following the battle at Germantown, Washington spent most of his time trying to consolidate his army in case there was a British counterattack, also trying to explain to Congress what had happened and seeking food and supplies for his increasingly desperate soldiers. After about two weeks, he moved the Continental Army a little bit closer to Philadelphia, setting his headquarters at the home of Peter Wentz, about 12 miles from Germantown. A few weeks after that, on November 2nd, he moved his army to White Marsh, only about eight miles from Germantown. By creeping closer to the British, Washington hoped to draw British attention away from the Delaware River defenses and keep focus on his army. If he could keep the British from seizing the forts on the Delaware River, perhaps he could keep General Howe's army isolated and without supply lines over the winter as the Delaware River froze. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, that did not work. The British leveled the forts along the Delaware, and the British Navy swept aside its river defenses and reached Philadelphia by late November. At this point, Washington's generals were divided on next steps. Some wanted a second attack on Philadelphia. Others wanted to withdraw a short distance and give the army time to rebuild and recover. Whatever the next step, Washington knew he was going to need a larger army if he had to contend with the larger British and Hessian force that was occupying Philadelphia. With the victory at Saratoga and the surrender of Burgoyne's Northern Army, much of the Northern Continental Army under General Gates would be freed up to come help Washington around Philadelphia. Convincing General Gates to give up his army, however, would prove more difficult. Washington did not want to put down in a letter the details about his army and its needs. There was too much danger that correspondence could be captured and turned over to the enemy. Instead, he sent his 20-year-old aide-de-camp, Colonel Alexander Hamilton, to apprise Gates personally of the situation and pass along the commander's orders to send the bulk of the Northern Army down to Pennsylvania. As Washington often did, he left some discretion with Hamilton because he might find different circumstances upon his arrival in Albany 
that might not make Washington's orders the best course of action. Hamilton made the 300-mile journey to Albany in a mere five days. Along the way, he stopped at the Peekskill, New York Command to give General Israel Putnam similar orders to deploy several brigades to Washington's command in Philadelphia. When Hamilton reached Gates in Albany on November 5th, he called for a meeting right away to convey Washington's messages. Gates, who was cocky enough to disrespect Washington by not even sending him a notice of the victory at Saratoga, was irked at having to listen to orders from a 20-year-old messenger boy sent by the man that he thought he should be replacing. Gates told Hamilton that he was still concerned that General Clinton might bring another British army up the Hudson River that year, and that he needed an army to oppose that danger if it came. He agreed to send Washington one brigade of about 600 Continentals under the command of General John Patterson. This was an unacceptably small number. It was, in effect, an insignificant number of soldiers compared to what Washington needed if he wanted to take any real action against the British in Philadelphia. After several days of arguing, Hamilton finally asked Gates if he should just go back to Pennsylvania and tell Washington that Gates was refusing to obey any orders to send the soldiers that Washington needed. At that point, Gates finally relented and agreed to send Morgan's rifles, as well as some troops under Generals Poor and Glover. These were still a compromise number to what Washington wanted, but they were better than his initial offer. The reinforcements finally made it to Washington, but not until it was too late to use them for the defenses at Forts Mifflin and Mercer. It probably did not help relations between Gates and Hamilton that Hamilton was still on very good terms with General Philip Schuyler, who Gates still saw as a rival when he took over the Northern Army. Hamilton stopped to spend some time with Schuyler, who was by this time essentially retired from the Army with no command of his own. He was living on his estate near Albany. And it was on this visit that Hamilton had the opportunity to meet Schuyler's daughter, Elizabeth, although it does not appear that any sparks flew at this first encounter with the future Mrs. Hamilton. As Colonel Hamilton began his return trip to Pennsylvania, he stopped back in Peekskill again, where he discovered that Putnam's promised reinforcements for Washington had never left camp. Hamilton had to berate the Major General and the General's aide, Colonel Aaron Burr, for their failure to deploy the army. The main problem, though, was not Putnam. It was that the men had refused to march until they got paid. As Hamilton continued his travels, he came down sick with a terrible fever. He took a few days to recover and then continued on his way. Unfortunately, the sickness got much worse and he needed to return to bed rest. From some accounts, many witnesses thought the young man was on his deathbed, where he remained for several weeks. Shortly before Christmas, Hamilton felt well enough to travel and hired a coach to take him back to Washington's camp. Again, though, he fell ill and had to return to his sickbed in New York. He would not make it back to Washington until late January. Meanwhile, back at White Marsh, Washington's army settled in and waited for the British to react. As they waited, the day after arriving at White Marsh, November 3rd, 
Washington ordered an inquiry into the actions of Major General Adam Stephen. Stephen, you may recall, faced charges of drunkenness and neglect of duty for his efforts at the Battle of Germantown. During that battle, Stephen's troops and General Anthony Wayne's troops fired on each other and then both fled the field. Stephen's chief accuser that day, Brigadier General Charles Scott, whom Stephen had criticized in his after-battle report to Washington, laid the blame for the incident squarely back on General Stephen. You also have to remember that General Stephen and Washington knew each other from way back. Stephen had come to Virginia from Scotland in 1748, where he had been serving as a surgeon aboard a British Navy vessel during the War of Jacob's Ear. When he arrived in Virginia, he settled in Fredericksburg, where he became a militia officer and had served as Colonel Washington's second-in-command of the 1st Virginia Regiment during the Braddock Campaign of 1755. During that campaign, by all accounts, the two men got along reasonably well. After the French and Indian War, Stephen and Washington got into competition with each other over the purchase of some western lands. They also ran against each other for the House of Burgess's seat in Fredericksburg. Although Washington won the seat, some have argued that he continued to hold a grudge against Stephen for even running against him. In truth, though, the divide between the two men was a little deeper than that. Stephen had a rough frontiersman persona and enjoyed drinking and hanging out with the troops. The elitist General Washington detested this sort of behavior in an officer. Perhaps also because Stephen knew Washington long before he became commander of the army, Stephen was not afraid to oppose the commander-in-chief in councils of war. Washington had rebuked Stephen at least twice before. At Trenton, Washington had accused Stephen of alerting the British to the surprise attack when he sent a team of soldiers to attack the Hessians. That team executed the attack without knowing about Washington's planned attack several hours before the rest of the Continentals arrived in Trenton. A few months later, General Washington had criticized Stephen again, this time for inflating casualty numbers in an after-battle report. The inquiry in this case led to a full court-martial headed by Major General John Sullivan a few days after the army arrived at White Marsh. Sullivan, you may recall, had been the subject of his own court-martial only a few weeks earlier for his actions at Brandywine and on Long Island. While Sullivan had been acquitted, Stephen did not fare so well. Without getting into all the details, the court found him guilty of drunkenness on repeated occasions and, quote, conduct unlike an officer. The board recommended that Stephen be dismissed from the army. On November 20th, Washington approved that recommendation. Stephen then appealed to Congress, arguing that, quote, a person of high rank was out to get him, almost certainly a reference to General Washington. Nevertheless, Stephen did not have strong political support in Congress. Congress upheld Washington's recommendation and cashiered General Stephen. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Washington gave command of Stephen's division to General Lafayette. The young Frenchman had been lobbying heavily for a command, 
And while Washington had been reluctant due to the Marquis's lack of experience and a concern that if he was killed in battle, that it could damage relations with France, Washington also expressed an apprehension that if Lafayette did not receive a command, he might resign and go home. That also would hurt relations with France. In the end, Lafayette took the command of Stevens' division. Stephen returned to Virginia, where he remained active in politics, and he would later go on to settle the town of Martinsburg in what is today West Virginia. Also around this same time, Washington ordered the remaining American ships on the Delaware River to be destroyed. The British Navy was still moving up the Delaware River toward Philadelphia, and Washington feared that the British might capture several vessels that were not quite complete and outfitted for war that had been moved upriver to Bordentown, New Jersey. One of these ships, the Effington, was commanded by Captain John Barry of the Continental Navy. Upon receiving instructions to scuttle his ship, Barry resisted those orders and demanded to speak with Washington first. Barry believed he could still use the ships and would have the ability to sink it if needed at a moment's notice. The dispute ended up with Barry and Congressman Francis Hopkinson of the Marine Committee having a huge fight. Hopkinson gave Barry the orders to sink the ship and denied him any time to question the orders with any other source. Barry argued that unless he received orders from the Marine Committee, not just one member acting on his own, that he was not going to destroy his ship. By most accounts, Hopkinson was arrogant and dismissive of Barry's position and called him a bunch of names that had, on other occasions, led to duels between gentlemen. In the end, Hopkinson ordered Barry off his ship and gave the orders to sink the ship himself. This led to other problems. The plan had been to sink the ship in such a way that it could be raised later if needed. Hopkinson's lack of experience resulted in the ship being sunk irretrievably, even though he reported to Washington that it could be raised later. The incident between Barry and Hopkinson became a really big deal because it led to congressional hearings against Barry in January. In the end, Congress acquitted Barry, I think mostly because they knew that their colleague, Hopkinson, could be a bit of an overbearing jerk and they tended to put most of the blame for the incident on the way he had handled it. The Continentals remained at White Marsh for a month, pretty much daring the British in Philadelphia, only a few miles away, to do something about it. Finally, on the night of December 4th, the British marched out in full force with about 12,000 soldiers to take White Marsh from the Continentals. The British easily repulsed an attack by about 600 Pennsylvania militia under the command of General James Irving before reaching the American defenses. The British night march and surprise attack, however, was not much of a surprise to Washington. Several days earlier, General Howe had discussed plans for the attack in Philadelphia. Howe had taken a large house near the Delaware River as his headquarters. He also commandeered the house across the street to use for meetings. The house for meetings belonged to the Daras, a Quaker family. Although Quakers tended to be loyalists, the Daras did support the Patriot cause, and in fact their oldest son was fighting with the Patriots outside the city. 
When Howe's officers used the home to develop their attack plans for White Marsh, Lydia Dara was forced to remain upstairs in her bedroom so that she could not overhear the soldiers' plans. Dara, however, could hear the discussions from her bedroom closet. She listened in and heard the necessary intelligence about the attack. The next day, she obtained a pass to leave town, ostensibly to visit her children who were staying with relatives outside of Philadelphia. Dara then made her way to a tavern outside of town where she could get the message to the Continental Army of the imminent British attack. When the British Army arrived in White Marsh in the pre-dawn hours of December 5th, they found the Americans ready and waiting behind their entrenchments. The Americans were getting better at building these defenses. They were on heights behind swampy land that the attackers would have to cross, and their flanks were well covered by abatis and artillery. The only realistic course of attack for the British was a frontal assault that would be extremely costly if successful. Instead, the British stopped and set up camp within sight of the Americans. They hoped to draw out the Americans into an attack on open fields. Washington, however, was not taking the bait. The Americans remained behind their defenses, watching the British for two days. Finally, shortly after midnight on December 7th, the British packed up and withdrew back to Germantown. Howe was not quite ready to give up the mission yet, though. From there, the British marched west, hoping to move around the American left flank and find a better way to attack. Again, though, their move was not much of a secret. The British left no forces in front of the lines at White Marsh to distract the Continentals. As they marched through small towns, they burned homes of patriots, which let everyone know where the army was. Howe deployed General Gray's regulars, along with several companies of Hessian Jaegers. Joining them was the Loyalist Regiment known as the Queen's Rangers, that had recently come under the command of Colonel John Graves Simcoe. This advance column was supposed to probe for weaknesses in the enemy lines. Instead, they ran into the newly deployed Morgan's Riflemen, who Hamilton had managed to get General Gates to send back to Washington. Morgan, backed up by Maryland militia colonel under Mordecai Gist, contested the British advance through the forest, inflicting casualties. Not finding any weaknesses in the American lines before dawn, the British paused once again. General Howe then ordered the army back to Philadelphia, arriving that evening. Washington sent out troops to harass the British rear during its retreat, but the British moved so quickly that the Americans never caught up with them. Overall, the attack cost the British not much, nine killed, 60 wounded, and 33 missing. Again, though, those are British reports, which tend to be notoriously lower than reality. Other accounts total British casualties at around 350 dead, wounded, and missing. American losses came primarily from the Pennsylvania militia, who had attacked the British column that first night, and from the engagement with Morgan's riflemen in the forest on the night of December 7th. Overall, the Americans are estimated to have lost about 150 killed or wounded and another 54 captured. While Washington's army could withstand the British assault, 
there were more persistent enemies facing the army, namely hunger and cold. Ever since the British took Philadelphia, Washington had been complaining that his soldiers did not have blankets, shoes, tents, and other basic necessities. There were also rampant food shortages. Having spent a month at White Marsh, the army had ravaged the immediate area of all food, supplies, and wood for fires. These needs were becoming worse with the December cold that was descending upon the ill-housed and ill-clad soldiers. Washington held a council to decide what to do next. Several officers still wanted to initiate another attack on Philadelphia. But the majority rejected that, as the men were in no condition for another attack and the British defenses around Philadelphia were too well established. Others wanted to move the army into winter quarters at Wilmington, Delaware, where they could continue to harass movements on the Delaware River. That position, however, did not allow a good line of retreat and also opened up an undefended path of attack on York, where Congress was sitting. In addition, any British movements to the north to link up with New York would also find the Americans out of position. The Continentals also considered moving to Lancaster, but that was too far from Philadelphia to keep an eye on the British and also would displace a great many civilians who had fled to that area from Philadelphia. A third option was to establish winter quarters out in the woods in an area a little further away from Philadelphia. At just over a day's march, this distance would prevent a surprise attack. The location was also near a large forested area that would provide firewood and lumber for building cabins for winter quarters. It was also close to farming communities that would provide a source of food for the army, and it also provided easy access to the Schuylkill River for water. Now, Washington's generals were pretty evenly divided on the three locations, so Washington made the final decision for the third option, a little place called Valley Forge. The army broke camp at White Marsh on December 11th. The men trudged through freezing rain and muddy roads as they made their way to the undisclosed location. As the column attempted to cross the Schuylkill River at Maston's Ford, it unexpectedly ran into a force of several thousand British soldiers under the command of General Lord Cornwallis. The British had been out on a large foraging party. Neither side had expected to see the other. The British were on the east side of the river and the surprised Americans quickly retreated back to the western side. Although Washington's army far outnumbered Cornwallis's brigade, it was not prepared for the fight and allowed the British to escape. The Americans reported five killed, 20 wounded, and another 20 captured from the advance force that had encountered Cornwallis. The British reported capturing 160 prisoners after a, quote, stubborn resistance. Washington paused his march for a week, sending out troops to look for more British in the area, camping at an area known as the Gulf or Gulf Mills. On December 19th, finding no more British in the area, the army packed up once again and continued its march to Valley Forge. It reached its intended destination the following day. With that, the two armies went into winter quarters 
with no more major operations planned until spring. Next week, we return to France, where the king is finally ready to enter into a secret alliance with the Americans. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now They even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to Trey Nance and George Davis who helped this podcast as Alexander Hamilton Club-level supporters on Patreon. Also thanks to Mike Hager, who supports the podcast at the Robert Morris Circle on Patreon. I also appreciate the one-time contribution from Francis Dumas on PayPal. Financial support is particularly appreciated right now. This week's episode almost didn't make it to being released on time, because my 10-year-old Windows 7 desktop that I was using to produce the podcast had a massive hard drive failure. Sadly, I failed to make a backup for about six weeks prior. I'm normally working on several upcoming episodes at once, all of which are at different stages of development. So, having lost all that work, I had to scramble to re-record and re-edit this episode in just a few days. I'm still going to be behind for a while as I try to redo that six weeks worth of lost work. So, in addition to all that, anyone who wants to kick in and help me buy some new equipment, I would greatly appreciate the support, either by becoming a supporter on Patreon or by making a one-time contribution via PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, or Pop Money. Well, that's enough about my troubles. This week the Continental Army was trying to pick a fight with the British in Philadelphia. Washington found himself in the difficult but increasingly familiar position of wanting to attack, but not having sufficient resources to make such an attack possible. He tried to provoke the British into attacking his defenses on ground of his choosing, but the British were unwilling to deal with the losses of another Bunker Hill-style victory. Because this really wasn't a full-on battle, White Marsh is largely forgotten by history. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but having grown up in the Philadelphia area and with an interest in the Revolution, 
And as someone whose own ancestors fought as Pennsylvania associators in the Philadelphia campaign, I've always heard about Brandywine, Paoli, Germantown, Valley Forge, and Trenton, but I never even heard about White Marsh until I began reading more about the Philadelphia campaign as an adult. It really is a nearly forgotten battle. This week, we also heard about Alexander Hamilton's closest brush with death during the war. Washington was becoming much more reliant on his aide-de-camp, who, remember, was only about 20 years old at this time. Sending Hamilton to General Horatio Gates in New York to get the general to release much of his army was a really sensitive job that might have required the tact and experience of a more senior officer. I think it's a testament to Hamilton that Washington trusted this young man with the job. Washington frequently took chances on younger officers without much experience, giving them responsibilities as a way of testing them. It was on this trip that Hamilton became deathly ill, and as I said in the main show, many people who were with him at the time thought that he was going to die. It took him many, many weeks to pull through, despite his efforts to return to the army. He was just so sick that he couldn't, and he remained for months before he could return to Washington's headquarters. The historical appreciation of Hamilton to the American Revolution has gotten a great deal more publicity in the past couple of years, primarily because of the Broadway musical about his life. There is no question, of course, that Alexander Hamilton was a key figure of the Revolution and probably an even more key figure in the years following the war itself. If you want to read more about the man, this week's book recommendation is Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. This is the same biography that Lin-Manuel Miranda read that inspired him to write the Hamilton musical. The book was first published in 2004, and at over 700 pages, not counting notes and index, it's a pretty thorough accounting of Hamilton's life. Note that we know relatively little about Hamilton's childhood, and Chernow gets through the Revolutionary War years in the first 200 pages, so the bulk of the book is Hamilton's post-war years. Still, I think it's a really great read. Chernow, of course, is a best-selling author. He's written a number of other books, including a very good biography of George Washington. His most recent book is about Civil War General Ulysses S. Grant. My online recommendation this week is a pamphlet called White Marsh, an address delivered before the Pennsylvania Society of Sons of the Revolution at White Marsh, by Charles Henry Jones. This was first published in 1909. It's about 20 pages long and focuses squarely on the Battle of White Marsh. You can search for an e-copy of it at archive.org, or, as always, I've included links on my blog and website. Just go to blog.amrevpodcast.com and look in the further reading section where you can always find more resources about each episode. There's also, of course, a full transcript of the episode as well as pictures and maps that help make explanation of the events we discuss each week a little more interesting. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.
What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.